Welcome to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. You're listening to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. I'm your host, Maria. Throughout the upcoming weeks and months, PowerShift's project is partnering with the Oxfam In-Depth podcast to share the experiences of people living through the coronavirus pandemic. If the climate crisis is an expression of a systemic crisis, then we need to address you know, all of these different expressions of that crisis at the same time. Like we need to talk about the economy, we need to talk about the political system, we need to talk about these cult, like fundamental cultural beliefs and address all of that at the same time. Hi everyone, this is Maria, your host. I'm really glad you could tune into this episode, which is part of a series in collaboration with the Climate, COVID and Care Feminist Journey Zine, which launched on the 24th of August. This publication is a collection of journeys, stories and ideas from five different feminist activists working at the intersections of gender and climate justice. So if you're listening to this episode but haven't checked out the rest, and especially if you enjoyed today's episode, I really encourage you to take a listen at our episodes with Hindu Omaru Ibrahim from Chad, Betty Barka from Fiji, and Maggie Mapondera from Zimbabwe. Today we're going to hear from Mahanda Rodriguez Acha, a climate justice and queer feminist activist from Lima, Peru. Mahandra's activism focuses on gender, intersectionality, capitalism, youth activism, and the environment. She's the co-founder of Tierra Activa Peru, has been Young Feminist Fellow for Climate Justice at the Women's Environment and Development Organization, and is a member of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Working Group at Global Green Grants Fund. Mahandra is currently the co-executive director at FRIDA, the Young Feminist Fund. And before we start hearing Mahandra speak, I want to briefly mention that Mahandra is a friend who I got to know through the Global Climate Justice Network, and I've been greatly inspired by the work that she's doing across various spaces, especially in building transnational feminist solidarity and helping create new narratives to the ecological crisis geared towards feminist solutions and community-based organizing. Before the pandemic hit, Mahandra and I met up twice, both in Spain and in Peru, and I had the chance to record an interview with her, which we've had to hold off for a bit. But we will be publishing it very soon when we announce some changes to this podcast channel in the next month or so. So Mahandra's voice is one you'll get familiar with if you follow us in future episodes as we continue changing along with our times. So to start off this very interesting episode, let's first hear Mahandra talk about why intersectionality and systemic analysis are central to the work and vision of young climate feminists, and especially about the importance of framing change, with a capital C, as both systemic and structural, and of working at the intersections of diverse movements, understanding that at the core, these are all intertwined. And here I would bring in Tierra Activa Peru, which is the youth collective and national network um, that myself and a few other people co-founded some years ago because our approach is, I mean, from the beginning was very much system change, not climate change, mm -hmm. and seeing kind of, you know, the intersectionality between different forms of oppression and structural inequalities and talking about how it's a series of systems that are interdependent. It's like the social, you know, sort of economic system, political system, social systems, cultural systems, even sort of, you know, spiritual understandings of the world, all are interdependent and that the crisis cuts across all of these interdependent systems. I'm really glad Mahandra mentioned one of Tierra Activa's key slogans that says system change, not climate change which also echoes across the entire climate justice movement space. 
And I think this offers a good antidote to something that we're seeing time and time again, which is how quick the crisis narrative becomes siloed into some technical or thematic focus areas. So instead of seeing ecological breakdown or gender-based violence or the multiple social and economic effects of the COVID-19 pandemic as symptoms of a systemic crisis, they start to be treated as their own issues. So let's hear her flesh this out a bit more and share some insights from young feminists who advocate for many of these issues simultaneously because they themselves embody various identities and struggles that can't be separated. You know, at Frida, we see that young feminist activism is like intersectionality and a systemic analysis of the crisis that we're facing is almost second nature. It's not something that you know, groups need to be convinced of in any way, it's completely natural. So, you know, Frida, for example, supports trans youth groups who are in the Pacific Islands who are confronting sea level rise, as well as they are confronting transphobic violence. And they talk about the need to have emergency housing or safe safe houses that don't discriminate against them and violence you know, their their safety and their security. And they're talking, you know, they're active in climate advocacy spaces and they're active in gender justice spaces. Again, like these are identities and these are struggles that you can't separate. They're necessarily all one and the same. And in society, we, we do have those silos and we do have those divisions established. And so you do have like the environmental advocacy space, you have the COB, the UN climate negotiations, you have the CSW or the Commission on the Status of Women in the UN, like talking about access, um, gender, advancing women's rights and gender justice agendas, etc. And, you know, a lot of these groups engage in multiple, in those multiple spaces because they're all, again, completely relevant to their, to their struggles and to their movements. Absolutely. And I would add that another danger of separating issues like climate and gender is that visions for solutions rooted in other logics and in other forms of valuing the land and social relations, not based on productivity or the commodification of nature or our disconnection from it, such as those of our current extractive economic model show to be, continue to be relegated. Mahandra highlights how corporate and state powers instrumentalize narratives based on the right to the land in order to productively exploit it, and makes interesting parallels between the exploitation of the earth and women's bodies, as understood from an ecofeminist perspective. You know, the president came out saying, um, who are these indigenous people? Like, if they're not going to exploit those resources, they can't stop us from doing it. They're second-class citizens, like literally said that. They're second-class citizens. Who are they to prevent us, you know, us, the collective, the whole Peruvian community from benefiting from these resources um, when, you know, we're in poverty, blah, 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 like we need to develop our economy. And then saying, you know, who are these people to who have these, uh, what was the term he used? He was like, who pray to deities such as mountains, sort of what nonsense is that? You know, the mountains are mountains, they're not gods, they're not alive, they're not spiritual beings, sort of negating the whole indigenous um, worldviews that sees mountains, trees, the land as spiritual beings, you know, as interconnected. So like there is also this, you know, social cultural understanding that, you know, sees the land as a resource to extract and exploit and it justifies the political and economic aspects of carrying out those activities. And, you know, it's, it's like a fundamental belief that 
you know, it's, it's our right to, to do so and that these resources are infinite and, you know, and if not, then technology will come in and solve any problem of scarcity there might be and um, understanding the economy as capitalist economy and not as, you know, system of exchange of goods. And anyway, so just sort of seeing the interdependency of all of these systems and understanding that if the climate crisis is an expression of a systemic crisis, then we need to address, you know, all of these different expressions of that crisis at the same time. Like we need to about the economy, we need to talk about the political system, we need to talk about these cult, like fundamental cultural beliefs and address all of that at the same time. Um, and again, of course, like this is interrelated to, to the patriarchy when the earth is seen as, as feminized, you know, it's, it's equated to, um, I mean, it's sort of in a binary understanding of things where you have like masculine and feminine and masculine is strong and feminine is weak and masculine is rational. And, it, you know, it's like about benefit and competition and feminine is, is emotions and it's spirituality and it's all these things that we don't want. And it's, again, like this binary understanding cuts across all these different realms and yeah, I mean, and in Peru, there's a very strong tradition of, of the earth being feminized um, culturally. You know, it's, it's Pachamama, it's like Mother Earth. And, and that's why she's strong and, and wise and powerful. Um, but in a patriarchal world, of course, that means that oh, she's there to be exploited and, and abused for the benefit of the patriarchal systems of power and dominance. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's all sort of interconnected in that way. Seen this way, it really isn't a coincidence that what's given feminine attributes becomes an object of conquest. And here I want to make a small interlude to complement what Mahandra is saying and bring in the concept foregrounded by several women across the Latin American region who talk about cuerpos territorios, which closely translates to body territory in English. This term builds bridges essentially between lands or territories and female bodies, by highlighting the connection between the exploitation of the land and of women, and engages us in the critical exercise of seeing how violence against women's bodies and the environments they live in are directly linked to each other. And if we take a step back, all of this also feeds reflections around what sorts of analysis and views we use in order to make sense of overlapping and intersecting injustices. And this inevitably brings up issues of inclusion, as it refers to who we are listening to and working with, which views are prioritized above the rest, and the power and privilege that might come with doing this kind of advocacy from our different spaces. So now let's go back to Mahandra, who offers some reflections about why inclusion is absolutely key to tackling the climate crisis, and talks about her own journey of questioning personal power and privilege, and figuring out how and when to use her voice to shift power you know, what my role is in a given circumstance. I think for me, I've always, you know, when people ask me to speak, I speak. But if not, I really try to take a step back and just ensure that the stage is set up, that the mic is there, you know, the background logistics are in place so that others can take that stage. So in Tierra Activa, for example, we've done a huge effort to leave Lima and to integrate young activists from across the country, including from the Andes and from the Amazon. And in these years, we've been able to build a really, really beautiful network. You know, the sort of the young activists from <clears throat> the Amazon, for example, who are now part of the leadership of Tierra Activa, because of that connection, are now able to access a whole variety of other spaces that they wouldn't have most likely otherwise. 
Um, and that's because we used our resources, the grants that we get got, for example, from Global Green Grants Fund at one point to organize national gatherings. Like I would say 80% of the funds went to ensuring that people who usually never have access to these kinds of spaces, like an activist convergence camp or you know, activist training space or these these kinds of places for young activists to get together. Like we we used the vast majority of the funding to ensure that those people were able to be in the room. And you know, that meant that we had to, I don't know, like um, cut down on other costs that made it less comfortable that meant that we weren't getting stipends or I mean different kinds of things um, but because our one priority was that was we don't want to replicate the inequalities that exist in this country we want to fight back against them and we want to dismantle them and so we need to use the resources that we have the privilege of having access to in a way that does that where we're not perpetuating those inequalities where we're not perpetuating that privilege by always having the same people who are always in the room in the room but actually you know making significant efforts um, to have indigenous youth to have rural youth who have to have youth who um, are working and don't have access to university education and others. And from outside of Lima in a country that's highly centralized in Peru, 30% um, of the population lives in Lima, in the capital city, and it's highly, highly centralized. Like the inequality between Lima and other regions is, is enormous. It's gigantic in terms of work opportunities, educational opportunities, health access and, and others. It's always been a huge priority for us as part of the systemic understanding of we need to dismantle all of these systems. And, you know, having indigenous people in the room is not separate from we need to fight the climate crisis, right? It's all interconnected. Yeah, I would say it's it's like a constant question and a constant challenge because privilege is comfortable and questioning privilege is uncomfortable. I really resonate with Mahandra's reflections and questions around inclusion and the need to constantly question our own position and voice, as well as constantly finding ways to decentralize power and open up new avenues for others to access resources. And this work that anchors itself on justice-oriented frameworks comes hand in hand with prioritizing care for each other, for our environment, and for ourselves. If we're serious about the long-term vision of change and placing the sustainability of life at the front and center, as Mahandra calls it, then caring for each other and forging new forms of economic relations become key to combating gender, climate, and all other forms of violence. Essentially, replacing our current paradigm of carelessness with caring. Um, and I think also one of the things that we're, we've, we're really seeing and we're really also um, talking about a lot is the importance of care in these spaces, the importance of sustaining our work and our activism, our lives, our well-being, you know, and, and really ensuring like how we that we don't burn out as activists, that we're taking care of each other, that we're in it for the long haul in a sense, and, and that we're supporting each other. And from a eco-feminist perspective, like understanding that the sustainability of life should be at the front and center. So it should be at the front and center of our economic system instead of profit and, and competition. We should you know, really be valuing sustainability of life and that means valuing care work and that means valuing, you know, which is, a, which is also uh, low carbon jobs. And, you know, again, like these interconnections between women's rights and gender justice sort of quote unquote agendas as well as climate justice struggles. And, you know, again, that 
if you center sustainability of life, then you're also taking this intersectional approach where it's sustainability of all life and the role that women historically, structurally, culturally have played in ensuring and supporting the sustainability of life um, and how that sustainability of life for planet and earth as well as for people and communities um, and ourselves as activists. Keeping with this theme of sustaining our struggles through care and expanding our sources of knowledge and leadership, Mahandra briefly but very powerfully condenses why youth activism is very important if our aim is to shift the power and highlights the need for more intergenerational dialogue. In an ageist world, I mean, our mission is to uplift the voices of people who are oftentimes said that, you know, you're not the expert, you don't know, you haven't lived enough, you don't understand, and, you know, really supporting and uplifting those voices. But yeah, I mean, I think with regards to what you're saying, that again, there's a lot of potential for that intergenerational dialogue and sharing of, of experiences and a lot of, again, like, yeah, wisdom to be shared from all sides. And all of this wisdom is so, so very necessary right now. We really need all of it. We're in the moment and the place to define what our after-pandemic world can look like. So if we occupy places of economic privilege, it could entail rethinking our priorities around what's essential and what we can live without. If we're working in spaces of negotiation and advocacy, it can mean rethinking what we've been told is feasible and being encouraged to push for even more change. If we live in countries with histories of militarized governments and authoritarianism, it can mean talking to our elders to learn about what they have gone through and how we can take those lessons forward. So to wrap up on this note of sharing wisdom across contexts and generations, let's turn to Mahandra one last time, this time sharing probing insights about how, for example, the authoritarian protective measures across various Latin American countries and the militarized curfew in her own country, Peru, is almost normalized for many people in the older generations because it has happened so many times before. So younger generations and movements coming together are very needed in order to overcome the blockages of history repeating itself to make it clear that something different is possible. Something that's really resonated with a lot of people has been Arundhati Roy's article around pandemic is a portal and how you know, this is really, and sort of different thought pieces that have come out around how this is really, it's a shift. It's a, you know, it's like there's a before and there's an after, and we're still in a place where we can really define what's, what that after will look like, where hopefully, again, we, we won't be going down the road of, we're fully going down the road of increased surveillance and, you know, authoritarian rule and all these things that, I don't know, like in Peru, we have a history of military government. We have a very short history of democracy. And in this time, people haven't, you know, didn't didn't blink twice when the government said, okay, we're sending the military out and you can't leave your houses. Um, whereas in the U.S., people are protesting because they might have to wear a face mask sometimes. It's like, yeah. you know, culturally and like historically, it's just, yeah, I mean, in, in Latin America in general, like a lot of governments have taken a very hard kind of authoritarian, militarized approach to the pandemic in a way that because it's happened before and not just once, but, you know, historically and over sustained periods of time for a lot of people, particularly older generations, it's natural and it's normal and they've lived it before. And I think for younger generations, it, it has been more shocking because we haven't necessarily lived it in, that, in the same way. In different contexts, I think it's, it's led to different sort of government measures and 
um, and responses. But, you know, so that that's one road. And then, of course, the other road is, is what you're saying around actually, let's rethink the model, right? Like, let's rethink the way we're doing things. In the climate negotiations, for example, we were told so many times, this isn't politically feasible, you know, it's not realistic, we can't cut back on production of, you know, these industries are like, we can't like, no, the economy, this and that status quo and business as usual is just so strong in our imaginary. I mean, and it's really just in our heads. Um, and of, of course, also expressed in concrete systems. But and now we're seeing like in a you know three months just how we've been able to completely shut things down and start you know the oil like the price of oil going below zero like these things that just a few months ago would have seemed completely just impossible are happening and how that can hopefully open up our this like <laughs> these like mental blocks that we have to allow us to think that actually something different is possible it's very possible you know we can build it so i think young feminist activists are really seeing that opportunity as well as climate justice movements i mean it's sort of like the yeah i don't know i mean it reminds me of the naomi klein shock doctrine as well yeah. um but how right-wing or capitalist interests can use crisis to pass their own favorable regulations, but how activists can do the same, really, yeah. um, as well. So, yeah, but I think a, a big emphasis right now is on mutual aid and is on how we can support each other through these times and how we can be in solidarity, how we can, you know, we know, I don't know, like questioning, do we need to be buying all these things and be consuming all these goods? Like shops have been shut, at least in Peru for, for months now. And we're, you know, like people are living their lives and the, their money's going towards what's more essential, like food and, and donating to each other and supporting each other and sharing what they have. And it's, it's, I think, Create, um, allowing for for these practices of, of mutual support and activists are are at the forefront of that like they're creating all these networks and you know on social media like using all these new technologies and tools to be in contact with each other even if we're not physically able to be in the same room like to have meetings to um, you know think of, of plans to set up platforms like this mm -hmm. there's this map that they've set up where people can like ask for help and share their stories and other people can go in and donate and you know it's like connecting people to each other just like designing websites and figuring out ways to reach people who don't have access to internet or technology like neighbors and different places and really really beautiful and powerful stories of, of how people are taking it upon themselves to build these systems to support each other and in doing so, like not just saying, OK, we're responding to this crisis now, but actually we want to set up these systems for the future as well. Mm. You know, that that center on, on aid and solidarity with each other. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of work happening towards that all around the world, like in all these, these local communities that we're not really hearing much about, yeah. um, but are so powerful. You've been listening to the mini series on climate, COVID and care in partnership with the zine with the same title. You can find links to the zine and more about Mahandra and her work with Tierra Activa, the Global Green Grants Fund, and Frida in the episode description below. I hope you go away resonating with Mahandra's call to focus our energies on the sustainability of things that emerge as responses to this pandemic, be it mutual aid systems, community organization, creative ideas and initiatives, and so on. 
These are what make up the new infrastructures that will sustain us in the years to come. So let's learn from past mistakes and link up in new ways. And let's keep coming back to what young climate feminists remind us of by understanding that cis-heteropatriarchy, environmental injustice, and the socioeconomic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic have the same roots in logics that see prosperity and well-being the exploitation and commodification of nature and in the bodies necessary to extract it. Personally, I'm very motivated constantly by young feminist climate activists to continue foregrounding justice, intersectionality, coalition building, and solidarity. Next week, we'll release the last episode from this series through our podcast channel, as well as our PowerShifts project Instagram. Make sure you stay tuned and follow us on Instagram. Also, if you like the Power in the Pandemic podcast, you'll probably like the Equals podcast. It features exciting intellectuals, activists, and political figures fighting inequality on different fronts, be it racism, tax dodging, and sexist economics. Just search Equals on your favorite podcast app. They've got two seasons out and will be launching the next one soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>